Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast, an audio guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about Gordon Johnson, a tragic man of many misfortunes, who was sidelined by life and shafted by fate, and yet crueler still, with no reason, and being so unexpected. The first time he ever met, saw, or even knew about his killer was in the seconds before his death. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 65, The Unfortunate Mr. Johnson. Today, I'm standing on Great Windmill Street in Soho, W1. One street north of the Salted Almond, where the Blackout Ripper met his fifth victim, Greta Haywood. One street west of Archer Street, where Larry Winters, Camille Gordon and French Fifi met their deaths. And two streets northeast of the cruelly titled Amusement Arcade, where Deborah Alvarez fought for her life. Coming soon to Murder Mile. There's a short, one-way side street on a slight incline, with Shaftesbury Avenue at the bottom and Brewer Street at the top. Although very recently gentrified, with tiny, shiny, artisan eateries all obsessed with avocado, blatantly pointless boutiques selling all the essentials, such as moo-moos, cravats and monocles, and shallow places for preening posers who won't purchase so much as a 16-carat gold box to store their belly fluff in, unless it's delicately placed in a ridiculously tiny branded bag. Amongst the sex shops, porn theatres and brothels, Great Windmill Street is famous for more than just sex. Since it was built in 1904, the basement of 41 Great Windmill Street has had many incarnations. 
as one of Britain's earliest jazz clubs ran by clarinetist Cy Laurie. As the Scene Club, an important home to mod culture where fledgling bands like the Rolling Stones and the Who cut their musical teeth. And as a gym where legendary boxing promoter Jack Solomons prepared and trained such boxing greats like Sugar Ray Robinson, Henry Cooper and Murder Mile's very own Freddie Mills. Now supposedly a very secret speakeasy, according to their website, their social media and several thousand listings in all of the hippest magazines that the in-crowd claim to buy but never actually read. The basement is now a quirky, funky, bloody bloody blah bar called Jack Solomon's. And with that, enough is said. And yet, in 1945, this was Max Dance Hall, a half-decent place for watered-down drinks, wartime dances, and secret seedy rendezvous with Soho sex workers, later made famous by a murder. As it was here, on Tuesday the 4th of September 1945, that a man of much misfortune would have a last dance with a lovely lady, and a date with death. The unfortunate Mr. Johnson was born Gordon Peacock on the 11th of June 1914 to his mother Elizabeth and his father Thomas with four siblings. As a good lad with a calm demeanour and a strong constitution, although poverty had left him a little undersized, never growing any bigger than nine stone and five foot three, being short but solid, Gordon was raised to be a fine young man but that's as far as his good luck ran. Age three, his baby brother died. Age four, his father died. Aged five, his widowed mother married a labourer called Thomas Johnson, who disliked his new stepson, and the feeling was mutual. Leaving school aged 14, Gordon trained as a rivet catcher at the Smith Dock Shipyard in Middlesbrough. As a young lad with short brown hair, light grey eyes, flushed cheeks and a boyish smile, Gordon would always be a little man in a sea of burly men. So having learned to handle himself, he was never bullied. And yet this mental toughness would prove invaluable as his luck went from bad to worse. Age 16, while sailing for Canada, Gordon broke his neck and after a failed operation to fuse the broken vertebrae, he was forced to wear a metal neck brace on and off for the rest of his life. Age 19, having been hit by a car and sustaining severe head injuries, Gordon began to suffer from epileptic seizures. Age 20, having served less than a year as a private in the British Army, Gordon burst a blood vessel and was declared medically unfit. But unwilling to give up, Gordon soldiered on. Age 21, just weeks before he married his sweetheart, Beatrice Studley, Gordon crashed his motorbike, broke his neck and fractured his skull. Age 25, Gordon fell off a ladder, fracturing his head and his neck. Age 27, Gordon and Beatrice opened a grocery store, 
but having suffered a hernia when his horse kicked him in the stomach, he was forced to sell his shop. At age 30, whilst working as a steel erector in Scunthorpe, Gordon was partially blinded by a shot rivet. And although his sight returned, he was scarred from his right eye to his right ear. But still, he soldiered on. In 1944, age 30, Gordon and Beatrice had a daughter, who they called Mavis. It should have been the greatest day of his life. But with the baby not being his, Gordon and Beatrice divorced. That same year, having had both of his arms scarred, his little finger severed, and once again his neck broken in a German U-boat attack on the trawler, he was declared medically unfit for active service and was discharged from the Merchant Navy. And living in an era where medical opinion was limited to if it's not bleeding, it's not broken, with his many injuries patched up, pinned, and his neck in plaster, the unfortunate Mr. Johnson ploughed on, unaware that a lifetime of severe head injuries had changed his personality forever. On the 2nd of January 1945, Gordon married 23-year-old Hilda Fleming, a waitress he had met at a dance four months earlier. Described by Hilda as a good man who never gambled, rarely drank and didn't cheat, sometimes Gordon could be kindness itself, and on other times he was violent and rude. But with his moods being few and far between, lasting only a short while, Afterwards, he would always apologise. Between the 1st and the 7th of July 1945, to celebrate the end of World War II, Gordon and Hilda spent a week in the seaside town of Scarborough, and by all accounts, they had a lovely time. And yet, on the following Monday, as Hilda unpacked the groceries in their kitchen, Gordon barked, Don't bother unpacking, we're splitting up. She thought it was just one of his black moods. But by the Tuesday, he had sold their possessions. And by the Wednesday, he had gone. She never saw him again. Crippled with pain and confined to a neck brace, Gordon tried to get his life back on track by working as a waiter at the Milroy Club in Mayfair, living in a tiny lodging in Euston, and having fallen for a lovely young lady called Lena Bell James. He was happy, in love, and engaged. But being sidelined by life and shafted by fate, like everything else in the life of the unfortunate Mr. Johnson, two months later, he would be dead. But not owing to a cruel accident. Instead, it was over another man. And his name? was Joe Devine. Joseph Devine was a private in the 219th Field Artillery, based out of the French port of La Havre. With Hitler dead and Japan in surrender, the war was over. So granted seven days leave, with cash burning a hole in his pocket and a permanent hard-on in his pants, Private Joe Devine headed into the West End. Like Gordon, he was 30 years old, 5'3", 
thin and yet thickly set. Only with black slick-backed hair, a dark hollow complexion and a US Army uniform. And whereas, with a scarred face, a slight limp and his neck in a brace, Gordon looked like the unluckiest man alive. With his shoulders high, his steps short, and a misguided belief that he resembled Jimmy Cagney, Joe looked like a comedy gangster. On the evening of Tuesday the 28th of August 1945, as Joe sauntered through Soho, he was propositioned by a girl who went by the street name of Rita, but her real name was Lena. Later giving a statement to the police, Joe said, I wanted to make use of a few dollars I had on me, so I went to Piccadilly. This girl came along. I looked at her and I said, Where you going, kid? You look like the real thing. Offering him five pounds for full sex, Joe said, Yeah, she was a nice looking kid. So I says to her, Hey, that's a lot of cabbage. But clearly he thought that she was worth every penny. As a 22-year-old girl who still lived at home with her mum in West Ham and often stayed with Gordon, her fiancé in Euston, Lena took Joe to a cheap, discreet haunt. You can't nail me on that, McCord. I've told them everything. At the back of Warner's cinema in Leicester Square, Lena handed the night watchman ten shillings to sleep on the cinema's sofa. Getting comfortable, Joe later said, She put her hair up, like she was at home. I guess if she had a stove, she'd have cooked some eggs. I got a real kick out of it. Having spent an awkward night together on the cinema's sofa, Joe later said, I took a real liking to her. She looked pretty good. So having cashed in £47, almost £2,000 today, I took 10 for myself, tossed her the rest and said, Here kid, we'll have a real swell time. Having booked into a hotel in Victoria, for five nights they parted, swigging whiskey at the Salted Almond, chowing down at the Lion's Corner House, and cutting a rug at Max Dance Hall. And then, on the sixth night, she didn't show up. I figured something must be wrong. I spent a few days looking for her. That's why I went to the Dance Hall, to talk to her. And then I see her with this guy. On Monday the 3rd of September, having exploded in a fiery rage with a fellow waiter at the Milroy Club over something he couldn't recall what it was even about, Gordon left his fifth job in as many months and made plans to meet Lena, having not seen her for most of that week. The next day, he would be dead. Tuesday the 5th of September 1945 was a bad day. Being sick with worry at her sudden disappearance, and a tad angry that, having blown more than a month's wages on her, that she may have dumped him. Unable to sleep for 48 hours, a crumpled and creased Private Joe Divine trawled the streets of Soho looking for Lena. At 8am, while skirting the north side of Piccadilly Circus, standing in line outside of the Lion's Cornhouse Tea Room, he spotted a friendly face. Well, sort of. 
having both been busted for going absent without leave and imprisoned for a week in the army stockade. Private Joe Devine's cellmate was Private Thomas Croft. To say that they were opposites was an understatement. As being fair-haired to Joe's brunette, stocky to Joe's squat, and six foot tall to Joe's barely five, they truly were like chalk and cheese. And whereas Joe talked ten to the dozen, ending each sentence with stock phrases like doll and kid, Thomas did not. Private Croft didn't say much, if at all. Being of a large build, with a stern expression, deep heaving breath, and small staring eyes, etched into a square head like a badly built snowman, he could be quite imposing. And although they didn't know each other well, being together was better than being alone. After a hearty breakfast, having not slept, Joe booked them into the Imperial, a cheap hotel in nearby Russell Square, where they bathed, they slept, and had their uniforms pressed. As Private Croft blacked his paratrooper's boots, Joe saw inside a nine-inch trench knife, a jagged dagger with seven inches of steel in a brown leather sheath. Feeling refreshed, Privates Croft and Divine headed out into Piccadilly. That day, Joe led and Thomas followed, as all the while, on his mind, was Lena. Gordon and Lena met mid-afternoon on Shaftesbury Avenue. She wore a pea-green dress, a fake leopard-skin coat and a hat to match. He wore a white shirt, a tie and a brown suit. His brace itched like hell, as the summer heat caused his neck to swell. And although he felt ropey, eager to please her, at 9.15pm, they went to Max Dance Hall at 41 Great Windmill Street. As a man of many misfortunes, as they entered the dance hall via the back entrance in Ham Yard, Gordon wasn't knocked unconscious by the double doors. He didn't fall down the dingy stairs, breaking his neck for the final time as he tumbled in a crumpled heap down into the basement. And neither did he prick his finger on an infected splinter, awkwardly trip over a tatty sofa, nor was he poisoned by an unclean bottle of beer. In fact, having only just arrived at Max Dance Hall, with the band switching from a tango to a rumba, having safely arrived, Gordon sashayed by the bandstand with Lena. And yet death was only moments away. Come out and take it, you dirty yellow-bellied rat, or I'll give it to you through the door. At 9.25pm, being several beers merrier, Privates Croft and Divine crossed Piccadilly Circus, sauntered up Shaftesbury Avenue and turned left into Great Windmill Street. One hour earlier, Joe had popped into Max to see if Lena was there, clearly in love with her, having spent five nights of passion together and blown almost two grand. But the club was almost empty. So being busier, Joe tried again. With the bar busy and the dance floor full, Briefly forgetting his aching love for Lena as two pretty girls passed the tiny G.I., who, acting like a twelve-year-old with a perpetual hard-on, felt that, because he fancied them, that he had to pull their hair, which, unsurprisingly, they did not appreciate. 
having blown off their disgust with a cocky... Ah, come on, girls. Don't think I'm getting fresh. Here, let me buy you a drink. Croft looked on incredulously, supping a solo beer, as he sat by himself in an empty booth. The night was a washout. Thomas was bored, and Joe was about ready to leave. And then he saw Lena. Well, hello. What do you hear? What do you say? So I see my girl dancing with his spiff. I walked over to cut in, and I tap him on the shoulder. He pushes my arm away, so I sucks him twice. Smacked squarely in the face, Gordon fell across the bandstand, hitting his head on the side of the piano. As Lena screamed, Joe, don't hit him, he's got a broken neck. Seeing his fiancée being manhandled, as Joe dragged Lena away, maybe feeling that he owned her, and so far that he hadn't got his money's worth, Gordon stepped in to protect her. And although he could barely see left or right as his head was held rigid by the neck brace, he knew how to handle himself. Sadly, Joe did not. And as Frederick Lipman, the piano player, shouted for the manager, Mr. Smedley! Mr. Smedley! On the dance floor, as Joe, the pint-sized pugilist, swung wild punches at his love rival, one fist missed Gordon and smacked Lena in the face. Both men stopped, gasped, and as her right cheek bled, her tears rolled. It didn't look good, a soldier thumping a disabled man. It didn't look good, any man punching a woman. And although Joe pleaded, I'm sorry, baby, I didn't mean it. Just like the war, the fight was over. And as their anger quelled, being thoroughly ashamed of himself, Joe had the good sense to walk away. But for the unfortunate Mr. Johnson, death was approaching. Very little is known about his killer, his life, his past, or his reasons why. But being sat alone, silently seething, seeing his prison pal punched in the face by some brown-suited spiff, from his paraboots he pulled a long dark sheath. And prowling like a panther, as he slowly circled the dance floor, his back to the wall, a shiny glint in his bulldog fist, his small staring eyes solely focused on his prey. Shocked at the sight of Lena's bleeding cheek, as Joe skulked away, Gordon turned to check that his fiancée was okay. Cradling her tear-soaked face, his back to the dance floor, and his killer. Through the dingy darkness, he didn't see the danger loom large. Over the booming band, he didn't hear someone scream, He's got a dagger! And as he grabbed Gordon by the right shoulder, and spun the crippled civilian to face him, for the first time in his short and tragic life, having never spoke, met, or heard anything about the other, Gordon Johnson saw Private Thomas Croft, the hulking great man towering almost a foot taller, as at eye height, balled up in his fist, was a nine-inch trench knife.
It was unfortunate for Gordon that his fiancée Lena was cheating on him. It was unfortunate that Joe, the other man that she was seeing, was a soldier. It was unfortunate that Lena loved to dance. And it was unfortunate that, at 8am, that morning, in a breakfast queue in Piccadilly, an angry and lovesick Joe Divine stumbled across an old friend who was silent, armed and unstable. And having survived his neck being broken four times before, that's when Gordon's luck finally ran out. Slamming the knife down deep, Private Croft plunged seven inches of hard steel into the left of Gordon's chest, piercing his heart as he instantly collapsed onto the bandstand. A river of red pumping through his white shirt, spurting up his pale face and forming a thick pool around his slumped frame. It all happened in seconds, so hearing the screams but not seeing the stabbing, I saw the civilian was on the floor. I figured I had killed him, so I'd best beat it out of there. As four men tackled Private Croft to the floor and dragging him to the basement to await the police. With the dance hall being full of gawkers, all eager to get an eyeful of a dying man drenched in blood, as Lena cradled his pale head, encased in its metal brace, his pulse was faint, his breathing was weak, and his last word was lost forever. So by the time the ambulance arrived, the unfortunate Mr. Johnson was dead. The next day, reading about the stabbing in the newspaper, Private Joe Devine gave himself up to the American authorities and was promptly discharged from duty. Lena Bell James accompanied Gordon's body to the hospital, but two years later, she too died. And on the 5th of September 1945, having denied everything, stating, I didn't know the guy, I didn't use a knife, I wasn't near him. With his fingerprints found on the blade and the sheath, and his boots and socks soaked with the victim's blood, Private Thomas Croft was handed over to the US military police, and the case was closed. In an attack, which Sir Bernard Spilsbury described as savage, the full length of the seven-inch blade had penetrated deep, breaking his breastbone, severing his left lung, splitting his heart's main artery, vein and aorta, and embedding its tip in his ninth rib at the back of Gordon's chest. Court-martialed at the US Army headquarters in Grosvenor Square, on the 21st of September 1945, 22-year-old Private Thomas Edward Croft was found guilty of murder. And being a brutal and unprovoked killing, although the prosecution asked for the death penalty, he was dishonorably discharged from military service, he had to forfeit his pay, and he was confined to hard labour for the rest of his natural life. 31-year-old Gordon Johnson could have died at any time during his short life, whether by starvation as an impoverished child, by disease which befell his baby brother, by conflict having served his country in the army and the navy, or any of the many injuries and accidents which almost rendered him paralysed or dead. But through pluck 
and moral toughness, unwilling to give in, he soldiered on. So the question we have to ask is, was fate smiling over him? Or was he truly the unfortunate Mr. Johnson? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. And so, if you're a murky miler, stay tuned for more extra dribble after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week, which are Mensaria and Writing About Crime. Mens rea is the legal principle of criminal intent. It means literally the guilty mind. Join me, Sinead, every fortnight to discuss Ireland and the UK's most heinous crimes and the court cases that followed. Do you want to know more about a kink killing in Dublin in 2012? Or serial killers in Scotland? Whatever your guilty pleasure, you'll find it and all the details with me. Find Mens Rea wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bonnie Lee, the host of Writing About Crime, a Canadian true crime podcast that looks for the story behind criminal cases. The people, the places, and the events that join together to create a narrative, not a scoop. I am not reading you the news. I am writing about crime. I hope you'll join me on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Nick Smith, Jules Barrett, and Erin Osdill, as well as a thank you to old patrons, regular listeners, anyone who has posted a review, and anyone who has told their friends about the podcast. Those personal recommendations are really appreciated. As you know, you can dedicate an episode of Murder Mile to a loved one. This week, I'm dedicating this episode to my granddad, Bob. As today, as I write this, is the 27th anniversary of his passing. Bob was a good man, always singing, always happy, always polite. A lovely man who defended his country as a Royal Marines commando, who worked as a truck driver to provide for his wife and child, And yet, cursed with cancer, he never got to enjoy his well-earned retirement. Bob may have been gone for many years, but there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about him and thank him. If you'd like to dedicate an episode of Murder Mile and treat someone to a very unique gift and financially help support this podcast, you can do so by going to the Murder Mile merch shop. There's a link in the show notes. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. That should be a little easier to edit. Huzzah! That was we. We're done. We're done. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. We're here, we're done. This is good. I'm a, I'm a day slightly ahead of myself. reason I'm doing that is because I'm going out on Saturday and uh, there'll be some beers and uh, yes. So I'm getting myself ahead so I can, if, if I if I have a, a day of moaning and groaning and grumbling about stuff, that's acceptable. So I'm, I'm, I'm about a day ahead of myself, which is great. Uh, I'm just going to open up the curtains and things. Oh dear, air. Here we go. One window open. Bow window open. As always, my four locks. This is all very exciting. I'm uh, oh, opening up the back doors and now oh, into my bow. So the front of the boat, which is normally the area where I keep all my coal, but it's also an area where you, where you can, people can sit, but we never use it as a place to sit. I've just got my new covers in, which are very exciting. New kind of black covers. They're made of a waterproof material. The old ones leaked all the time, but the new ones are really good. And they've got little windows in them. It's cost me a bloody fortune, but they're very good. So now I've got a little triangular window in front that I can look out of, and it's really nice. So I'm going to get my tea on. Have a, have a cup of tea, a couple of tea. So hope you enjoyed that episode. That was uh, the murder of Gordon Johnson by Private Thomas Edward Croft. Uh, let me just tea. You pop these in. Tea, sugar cubes, and with dinner ready as well. Lights off. Oh, let's open this window as well. It's 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 a bit of a hot day today. It's not majorly hot, but you can feel it's picking up. So yeah, no, we've had a week. We've had a week of it, of it piddling down, and now uh, the sun's coming out, which is nice. So uh, hopefully, I'll be in Hyde Park this weekend. Having some cheekies because a friend's birthday. Uh, then we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. So yeah, now all good. It's, obviously, it's been raining all week. Um, been piddling down. It's been piddling down so hard and heavy that um, the snails that are in the in the canal. Oh, moving my sofa back. Uh, snails that are in the canal. In the evening, I've been watching them crawl up the boat. They've been cr- trying to get out of the water to escape and try to go up into onto my roof. Uh, to, somewhere to whether to dry off or, or just eat my plants i think they'll just eat my plants so uh yeah oh sorry uh, uh if you're new to extra mile this is the waffly bit i might have just said that this is the waffly bit 
uh, unscripted, unedited. But what I'll do is I'll, I'm going into some details about the case that what, what have made it into the episode. Uh, even though by the time you hear this, you'll have heard you'll have heard the edited version, the bit that you've just heard. I haven't edited yet, so I don't know what I've taken out. So, but this is stuff that. Uh, didn't make it into the script obviously uh if people are listening to this via patreon my patreon supporters get uh, a script to this every time the episode goes out you get uh, the unedited script so you get to see all the stuff that didn't make it into the edit as well so that's a, a new extra that i've started adding to uh, all the patreon accounts and i'm a, a little bit more thorough with my uh, patreon now i've got a list on my wall and mondays is the new episode so every monday you get the if you're a ten dollar supporter you get the new episode Tuesdays you get the location videos, that's two days before everyone else. Wednesdays I do a nice selection of photos, and whether crime scene photos or locations, and sometimes you get loads of photos. Uh, With this one, probably not, because I haven't got that much for this one. Thursday is the new episode, and you get a script with that as well. And then I throw out some other episodes as well, Uh, some other goodies throughout the week, and, you know, etc. So, oh, oh, I'm out of breath. Um, So... Uh, what's going on? I'm still in the same place I was where uh, I recorded last week's episode. It's all nice and quiet. Uh, there's some sheep behind me. They've been very quiet. I'm recording in the afternoon, not in the morning. Normally I record first thing in the mornings. Uh, but because I, I whizzed through this script, I don't know how. I thought, I thought oh, I hope I make it to Friday. But yesterday I had a real surge. So, uh, yeah, I'd finished, I literally finished this by lunch, lunchtime and thought, hmm, let's record it today. So I've done that. Uh, it's nice and quiet here. It's very peaceful. The birds aren't making too much sound. There's a couple of planes flying over. Not a problem. There's a sports arena in front of me. And every so often I can hear. And then everyone cheers. It goes. So, uh, but uh, hopefully you didn't hear that. Uh, and that's that. Uh, where are we? Last night I went out to see Cult With No Name. So Cult With No Name, we do the, most of the music for uh, Murder Mile. Went to see uh, Johnny and Eric perform. That was really good. They're always good. They're always good live to see them. A uh, little bit of a bizarre night. I wasn't really too sure what it was. It was kind of an audience with some, some guy who's something to do with some kind of 80s band who seems to know everyone. I have no idea. I had to turn to Johnny and say, I don't know who this guy is. And he's, he seems like a bit of a prick as well. Uh, so, but Cut With No Name were really good. And there was uh, another band called After The Blitz. They were there as well. Uh, I thought they were really good. Yeah, they were really, really nice to listen to. Really good bands. But the problem is the, the host wasn't really giving... This is just my opinion. The host wasn't really giving the bands uh, the respect that they deserved. You know, he was kind of like uh, off meeting and greeting his kind of his fans it was like a small gaggle of really annoying people who kind of really loved him i didn't know who this guy was uh, and they were kissing his ass and he was loving it and having selfies around the stage sometimes behind the stage sometimes to the side of the stage like just being a bit of a prick while people were performing so i really felt sorry for the performers but everyone else was really good uh and he did it. He did a Q and A. I'm not going to see. I'm not going to say his name. But he did a Q and A, and he just wasn't. He wasn't funny, and he couldn't see any irony in his words. Like things he was saying was just oh, like he was dis. He was dissing young people and new music, and he said, "Oh, all they do, all they do, basically, is they just get a laptop and they press some buttons, right?" Which made him sound really old. But because he's also a DJ, 
Then he was doing a little bit of a DJ set there. And all he was doing was pressing fucking buttons on the laptop. I apologise for swearing then. But that was literally it. And I was like, you're dissing one group of people. You're doing exactly the same. So anyway, anyway. Oh. Uh, so that was that. That was good. Hopefully we'll see Cult with No Name at uh, another gig soon. And they've got a new album out in September. So there'll be a nice little thing coming on the, the podcast. Hopefully soon with a little little chat with them, which will be nice. Uh, just wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone who was very kind, um, sent me some very nice messages about the Rosendale murder, uh, the two-parter that I delivered last week. Mm, well, it'll be, last week it delivered when I'm recording this, but obviously this will be three weeks ago. Uh, that was the two-parter, that was the original two-parter that I was going to open this season with, because uh, it was so different, because there's no sympathetic characters in it, it's very different, it's all about the kind of the analysis of the the investigation how the police solved it i just felt it was too different i didn't really know how it would go down because there's no emotional angle to it but people seem to like it it went down really well so that's really good that's given me a little bit more confidence to to try more ideas do you know i want to try different experiments so you're not getting the same story every week or the same kind of story what i want is you know something that's just a bit different uh to keep murder mile fresh so so that was good. So thanks for that. Uh, right. Uh, this episode. So this was the, the murder of Gordon Johnson by Private Thomas Edward Croft. It's amazing. I can say that now. Throughout this recording, I couldn't say Private Thomas Edward Croft. Well, suddenly I can. Uh, so this was just a random file. This is what I like to do now is I just pull a random file out of the archives. Uh, I go to the National Archive. Literally, I I knew the street. I knew the date. I knew one name. And that was it. And I did, didn't know anything about it. I didn't know who had killed what. But what I love doing is just pulling out the file and just going, right, let's read it and let's see what happens. And I read it first time and I thought, what the hell happened? It's like, because it, I was going through the story, because it's not in chronological order, as I mentioned before. It's all a mess. Uh, so at the start, you find out uh, that uh, someone's dead and then the kind of witness statements. and stuff. Oh, no, the witness statements were at the back on this one. So I was I, I didn't really know what had happened. I knew someone had been stabbed. I knew who he was. I knew he was with a lady called Lena. You can hear the blackbird outside. He's been really noisy. Um, uh, and I was going through it. And then when I found out that uh, it wasn't private, private Joe Divine. Hey, hey, doll. Uh, when <laughs> all of that's real, I know people are going to be saying, uh, why did you create all this fictional stuff around, around, uh, who Joe Divine was like all of his statements, like, Hey dame, Hey, g- Hey gal, you look real. Yeah. Hey, check out all that cabbage. Do you know all that? It's all taken from his witness statements. It's all accurate. I haven't changed it. That is his, when I read it, I was like, what the flip is he meant to be? just came across, across as a prick so uh, when i was reading the story it's all about joe divine and lena and then the gordon kind of love triangle and then all of a sudden private thomas croft murders uh gordon and you just go what happened so i had to go back and reread it and then start going through and it's really weird uh, thomas croft gave very few details about himself uh we'll, we'll go into that very shortly but it was uh yeah, it was baffling. Uh, so hopefully I've tried to make it a little bit... I've made it more of a mystery one in here. So hopefully you're listening to this thinking, oh, well, Joe's going to kill him. And then I left some little clues in there about the fact that uh, Joe, he had his... Uh, Thomas had a knife and stuff like that. And, you know, staring eyes, all true. 
big bloke staring eyes it's all details that i took from the descriptions so uh um yeah i left it as a bit of a mystery and then uh, so you think that joe's going to kill him but joe doesn't and then all of a sudden it's like oh why did that happen we don't know we really don't know he didn't give a reason why so but i thought it was interesting when i was reading about this i was going through all the witness state all the kind of information about uh private Oh, private gordon johnson's life about how unfortunate he was and i had to keep double checking everything i was like oh he broke his neck there and it was then it was like oh he broke his neck here there and i was like well no that must be the same moment and then he and I, there was like various versions of it and i was like hang on no I, so i had to triple check all the time all these dates and times of which he broke his neck and which he got kicked in the stomach by the horse and whether which one was him uh, falling off his bike and which one was being run over by a car and which one, uh, one was him falling whilst on a boat. And it was just like, how many times can you break your bloody neck and survive as well? Uh, so that was really bizarre. Uh, I, but I think I think I gave a little bit of uh, emotion to the story. So we, even though his personality changed a little bit as he kind of went on, he didn't... I added in that as well because what I wanted to do was make you think because we've had a couple of these before where people have like had a head injury and you go oh they're going to turn out to be a wrong one aren't they because this like they do say with serial killers often it's abuse as a child uh, or head injuries or both to be honest so i added that in to make you think oh maybe he's going to kick off at the end but uh, as you'll see I'll, I'll go into the descriptions later on gordon didn't he didn't turn into a nutter he was you know he had he had he clearly was suffering from something going on some kind of head trauma but it would come and go and then as his wife said he would you know he'd have black moods but she would always say do you know what it was just a short black mood and all of a sudden you know he would he would apologize to it he'd be really upset about it so so clearly he couldn't control himself um just thought i'd point this out i know some people like remember i said last week that there was that lady on one of the platforms and she was, she said that uh, she gave my podcast a negative review she said because it was all full of unfounded details and I'm like no 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 it, it is all founded it's just you know many people use uh, other ways of, of sourcing information to tell a story well it's because I, I use the original witness statements I use every single detail that I use a lot of the details that people ignore and I think that adds a lot of texture to my story so I add I add you know what color things are what what brands people wear do you know it's all little details that tell you a lot about a person for me it's important but it's stuff that people will ignore so um everything in here is real everything was taken by by uh, as in all the stories taken but from the witness statements and this one I, i'm going to point this out now this is entirely real i hadn't fabricated this but it was one of those details it was just too juicy it's like oh you've got to put that in so uh as the fight was happening between Gordon and Joe Devine and uh, as Private Croft was getting up from his seat uh, with the knife, that description of Private Croft skirting around the side of the dance floor with his back to the wall, with his knife in a balled up fist, with his eyes fixed like a panther, just staring at them and slowly approaching across the dance floor. All of that was in the witness statements. There was loads of witness statements. Like people saw him, and they were like, "He's a big guy. He's six foot tall, average height of kind of a man." World War Two is about five seven. Five seven, five six. Women was about five two. So he really was towering across across the room. He was a big bloke, and many people did saw him, and they saw him with a knife. But they said he had his back to the 
wall and he was skirting around it was almost as if he saw this as a battle zone almost as if he saw everyone around him as possible enemies and he didn't want to be caught so you know as they always say in like a, a, a military situation you know you keep your back to the wall therefore no one can attack you from behind uh so all of that was true all these details in here just it, as silly as it seems like even the stuff with like the horse kicking him in the stomach all of that stuff is entirely true there's literally nothing to be honest there were chunks that i took out because sometimes i thought mm, even though i decided at the start i was going to make this a little bit silly have a little bit more fun with it because we've had some real downer episodes i thought it'd be nice to have a real silly murder again because they're nice to have sometimes not for the people who are murdered, obviously. Uh, but no, uh, these, uh, yeah, all of these details are accurate. Um, uh, one thing that you might have noticed, so we have been on Great Windmill Street before. If you go back through the episodes and there's the one about the deaf mute murderer, the one uh, George Pickering. We've been on Great Windmill Street before. So next to 41 Great Windmill Street, as mentioned in here, was the Cameo Cinema uh, so when Joe Devine uh, uh, kicked out the screen door, it's like oh, I hate when he says that because it's like he's trying to make out that he's a big hero. Uh, he kicks out the screen door, goes on to fire escape, and then there's two guys. I think it's Robert Frenchie and his his mate Doug. And he goes the 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 way out's that way. And he goes, "Don't tell me where the where the exit is. I'll do you, buddy." Um, <laughs> twat, utter twat. Uh, the cameo cinema next door was where George Pickering, the deaf mute murderer, went to watch pornography before he stabbed Rosa O'Neill to death. So the more episodes we do now, the more of these stories you're going to start seeing all of these, though, because what we into uh, 64 episodes now, 65 episodes. Uh, all of these stories are going to start merging. There's a lot of stories, a lot of places merging. Uh, we've already mentioned the Salted Almond, where the Blackout Ripper met his fifth victim. That is on that street, just on the corner and there as well. Just up the road was Ginger Ray's house. You know, all these places are starting to merge now. I mentioned in their French Fifi if you, if, uh, that she was murdered on uh, Arch Street. If you're thinking, I don't remember a French Fifi, that's because you only get that story on the tour. On my tours... Uh, uh, on the Murder Mile tour, it's I, I, I deliberately try and make it very different from the uh, the podcasts. So the only thing that's the same on the podcast is uh, Dutch Lair, but I give you an entirely different spin on the Dutch Lair story, not the one that you've he heard on the podcast. We do the Blackout Ripper, but a shortened version because it's uh, there's a location there, uh, and there's a different. I'm not I'm not going to say anymore. I'm not going to say anymore. But I, I, I've also started pointing out new locations as well. So, ooh, for podcast listeners. Right, let's do some stuff on the episode. I'm on my slurp and my tea, and I've left my biscuits over there. It's really annoying. Uh, chocolate Oaties, in case you're wondering. Uh, so, uh, just after the stabbing, uh, Private Croft uh, was tackled. So, uh, the pianist called for Mr. Smedley, who was the doorman. Uh, where we go? Da, 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 da. He said, uh, Croft had a knife, he raised it in a threatening way. Uh, Sedley, Sedley ran out to get the American uh, MPs, so the uh, uh, American poli uh, military policemen, there were outside. Uh, McAllister, who was the landlord, followed Croft. I had to take this out because it kind of threw stuff out, but he followed Croft. Croft circled the bandstand uh, back to the wall uh, so no one could jump him. <coughs> when he approached the bandstand, he struck. 
As Croft, so Private Croft, tried to exit, McAllister, the landlord, jumped on him from behind and banged Croft's head off the exit door. Croft attempted to use the knife on McAllister, the landlord, uh, but McAllister grabbed his wrist. He was helped and pinned him to the ground by a couple of other men called David Lazarus, Marcel Mayer and George McAllen, and they got him into the basement, disabled him, not disabled him as in broke his back, but just (laughs) disarmed him uh, and then uh, uh, put the knife aside. I took this out as well because this throws off the story. I think after someone is murdered, you really want to find out what's happened to the person and what the investigation is. So this bit happened afterwards, but I took this out as well. When they took him down into the basement and they were waiting for the military police to turn up, um, Croft had a bit of a cockiness about him as well, just like Joe Devine. So a lady called Sylvia Neal said to Croft, uh, said uh, Croft was brought to the... Brought to the... Brought to the... Pinned to the ground by several men. In the basement, Croft said to Olivia Loach, Sylvia's friend, there was the two of them together, can you recognise me as as the one who did it? Olive said, uh, Olive Loach, Sylvia's friend, said yes. In the basement, Croft said to Smedley, the manager, "Uh, would you be prepared in a court of law to swear under oath that you saw me with a knife? Smedley said, a Smedley, Sedley said, yes, I definitely would. In the basement, Croft said, I don't know anything about that knife. I didn't use it. So he did that a couple of times. He, he kept trying to say, you know, um, I wasn't there. It wasn't me. It was nothing. Uh, uh, Constable Herbert G., who was the first man on, policeman on the scene, arrived at 9.35. Uh, Johnson was half lying on the bandstand, his legs on a chair, unconscious. He, was, he detained the prisoner in the basement. Uh, by that point, the knife and the sheath was on the table. Uh... On the table also was Croft's cap, uh, so Private Croft's cap, which is blood-stained, shows how much blood there was if he'd got blood on his cap, cap and his shoes and his trousers. And, uh, f- floor by the bandstand, uh, on the floor by the bandstand was a blood-stained sixpence. Uh, I took this out as well. Um, there was so much blood on Private Croft's trousers as well. We me- I mentioned at the start that it was kind of uh, at the end of the there was blood on his boots and it was soaked through to his socks but there was so much blood it was all down his trousers as well because it was spurting so much so that the coins that were in private croft's pocket were covered in blood and they fell through his pocket and landed on the dance floor uh so they, they were picked up as well so it was a, a blood-stained sixpence uh, all were handed to the detective sergeant draycott first time i've heard of him uh followed by ds shepherd um they're all surrounded by witnesses who told the police that he was Uh, that he was lying when Croft said, I know nothing about it. He said, it's no use saying anything. You're all against me. DS Greaves then cautioned Croft. Croft then said, I don't know anything about it. And the knife doesn't belong to me. Can I I have my cap? Which was bloodstained. Croft brought, uh, was taken to the Western Central Police Station by PCG. Uh, PCG said that Johnson's uh, Gordon Johnson's shirt was opened he was bleeding profusely and his shoes were off and a woman was standing beside him holding him up that would be Lena Uh, private uh, obviously uh, I did a little bit of research into uh, Lena we know nothing about why she died she she died two years later she was aged 24 
Uh, it is believed that she died in childbirth, but there's nothing to suggest that. No, no details around that as well. So it's it, it's a bit of a blank there. But then again, it doesn't really affect the story. So who cares? Uh, Private Elton Harner, uh, who was stationed at uh, a station hospital uh, just around the corner on Mount Street. That um, 33 Mount Street is gone now. That would be where the old police station was, which is now Facebook. Of course it's Facebook. Uh, he felt for a pulse, but there wasn't one. Uh, he put Private Johnson uh, onto a stretcher, and he said his face was whitish and yellow. Um, I think, is this Lena? Uh, yeah, this was Lena. So, uh, Lena gave two statements. Uh, she said, when I got to my feet, I saw there was a crowd around Gordon. I saw he was lying on the bandstand and there was blood coming from his chest. I was pulled away by some girls. Oh, I wish I was pulled away by some girls. Uh, not that way. Uh, <laughs> and I could not get near him. Uh, Eva's going to be so upset about that. Uh, as I have already said, I cannot describe the American who came between Gordon and I and any other American who was on the dance floor. That was her first statement. Uh, because in her first statement, she entirely denied that she knew anything about Private Joseph Divine, even though she spent five days with him. And then uh, she later made a statement that saying that she didn't want to get him into any trouble. Um, she said, Gordon was a very good tempered boy and I have never seen him lose his temper. Even when the American tried to pull me away, he did no more than protect me with his arm and try to push the American away. So two days later, she meant a new, She gave a new statement. She said, as he grabbed my arm, I then saw it was Joe Divine, whom, whom, I, have, whom I had known previously. Uh, I did not say previously that it was Joe, as I did not want him to be involved. I first met him at the latter end of August in Coventry Street, outside the corner house, after a few drinks. Uh, we arranged to stay together, uh, for which he would pay me five pounds. No reference of prostitution there. Um, even though she used the street name Lena. That's fine. Uh, Lena accompanied the body of Private Johnson uh, in an American Army ambulance to the St. George's Hospital. Uh, that's not too far away. That's literally just around the corner. Uh, accompanied by uh, Corporal Prince and Privates Hana and Neji. What a name. I'm sorry if your same is, name is Neji. Neji. Sounds like a testicle. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Henry Shaw of St. George's confirmed Johnson had a small gaping puncture directly over the second left costal cartilage. Uh, it been uh, the stab wound had been done with considerable force, and the blow came from above and down, which is weird considering that uh, the difference in height between the two men was uh, obviously five foot three for Corporal, no, not Corporal uh, Gordon Johnson, and six foot tall for Private. <sighs> My brain's really going now. Private tall dude, what's his name? Croft. Uh, and yet people were saying that as he was coming on the dance floor, he raised a uh, Private Croft raised the knife up to his eye height. Which doesn't really make sense. Why would he... I mean, it's, it's a lot of anger. He deliberately is using a lot of anger and force to stab this guy. But, do you know, he's a little guy. You, why? It just shows that he, the kind of, kind of psychopathy of the man. That you clearly... Well, you, I mean, he was a murderer, really, wasn't he? Um... Uh, 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 that we don't need that. Right. 
uh, okay, so there was a denial by Croft. So, um, which we've kind of already seen. So Joe went inside. Croft followed him. Uh, this was at the start. Uh, um, oh, my brain is gone. Come on, brain. Uh, so uh, when Private Croft was giving a witness statement to the police, he said that at the start, before they went in, uh, Joe went inside. Croft followed him. Didn't mention that they hadn't paid and that they snuck in. Uh, Croft said that he stood by the beer counter, had a beer, people were dancing, he found an empty table and he sat there, which is basically true. The orchestra was playing and people were dancing, so I went to get a table to get out of the way. He was a bit of a moody bugger and Joe didn't like company. I just sat sat my glass on the table and then there was a big commotion on the dance floor and someone was laying on the floor. You, you see what he did there? Uh, I did not, did not see Joe as there was a crowd. When I saw there was trouble, I started back towards the bar. The bar is in the dance floor located near the entrance. I was going across the floor. Someone jumped on my back and I managed to sling whoever it was off me. And then I heard some people in the crowd holler, he's got a knife. Ooh, a little burpy there. Sorry about that. Then I turned back towards the crowd and saw Joe Devine in the crowd. I thought that Joe was in trouble. Just then, I was struck on the head. I then reached down into my boot and took out my knife. So apparently someone said, oh, he's got a knife, and then he took out his knife out of his boot. Mm. Uh, I took out my knife in order to scare those who were hitting me. Why were people hitting him when all he was doing was walking across the dance floor? Unknown. Uh, I, I swung it around to let them know it had to to let them know I had it to stop them jumping on me. I don't recall the knife striking anyone. My intentions were to peek, to keep people off me until I could get to the door and call for help. Oh, he's a hero, isn't he? A private Croft is a hero. Well, there we go. Uh, the next time I got away uh, from those who, that were hitting me, I did not have the knife in my possession. I was finally dazed, and the next thing I knew, I was sitting on a chair downstairs in the cellar. American Shore Patrol and some civilians were there with me. The US military police arrived and handcuffed me. Uh, he denied at that point that the coins, which were bloodstained, they were also on the table as well, that they were his, that they fell from his pants. Um, pants in the American sense, not, not the British sense. Uh, obviously, it'd be weird if he kept coins in his pants. <laughs> obviously, you do have a coin purse in your pants, but uh, that's different. Um, and he denied that the knife was even his, even though he just claimed that he'd just pulled it from his boot. There was an autopsy. Uh, so obviously uh, Gordon Johnson was fatally stabbed just over the heart which caused an almost instantaneous death he had bruising about the face consistent with being punched the autopsy was conducted by Sir Bernard Spilsbury so this is about four years before he retired so this is the end of his life Uh, at 3pm on the 5th of September uh, at Westminster Coroner's Court um, uh, Captain Schwab Captain Schwab the medical officer of the US Army was present as was required uh, death uh, was by hemorrhage death was by hemorrhage of a stab wound to the chest uh, Gordon Johnson had bruising to both lips a small bruise behind his left ear consistent with being struck when falling against an object probably the piano 
the knife went in downwards through as mentioned through his breastbone cut the front edge of his left lung divided the main pulmonary artery i couldn't say main pulmonary artery artery when i was recording this so i said heart's artery it's the same shit uh and opened one of the main pulmonary you can say pulmonary now and opened one of the main pulmonary veins near his heart and opened the main aorta and struck the ninth rib at the back of his uh, at his back with a lot of force embedding an inch deep into the black into the back rib so it was seven inches you can see how much force was used uh spilsbury said it was a uh, savage attack with used with considerable force uh and knew the next day Lena identified the body of Johnson at Westminster Mortuary and on the 7th of September he was identified by his wife Hilda. Samples of blood were taken from the victim and the suspect. Um, uh, during the autopsy they said that he... Uh, so uh, to, on top of all of his injuries at some point in, in his life Gordon Johnson had also suffered from tuberculosis which in that era was a, a real killer. So he'd survived that as well. Uh, and during the attack, he had lost seven pints of blood. So what was he? You got eight or nine in your system. He'd lost seven. So that says a lot. Uh, investigation was held by uh, Detective Inspector Stevens of C Division, which is where Western Central is. Um, they had the bloodstained clothing and the trench knife, uh, which was examined by Dr. Davidson of the Police College in Hendon. The evidence was sent to uh, Dr. Davidson on the 6th, uh, but he was on holiday and no other staff were able to do the blood grouping. Uh, so it had to wait. Uh, so the, the, the blood was grouped by Dr. Roche uh, Lyons at uh, St. Mary's, which is where uh, uh, Sir Bernard Spilsbury is mostly based or was mostly based. He's dead now, obviously. Spoilers. Um, uh, and it, it it was kind of irrelevant anyway because Croft and Johnson had the same blood group. It was uh, type O. Uh, they also found a bloodstained handkerchief which was owned by Croft. So that was all done and dusted. Um, they uh, they had an inquest into the uh, death. Uh, it was started on the 7th of September, adjourned till the 9th of October, closed on the 12th. There really wasn't a huge amount to say, but they had to go through all the evidence. Um, and it was done at Westminster Coroner's Court. That would be via Mr. Ingleby Oddy, as we know, who's uh, the um, coroner there. Uh, and the matter was did, matter was closed. Uh, we, Private Thomas Edward was Croft. Private Thomas Edward Croft pff, uh, was imprisoned, uh, sentenced to life imprisonment by the U.S. United States Court Martial at Number Twenty Grosvenor Square. So Grosvenor Square is where the old American Embassy used to be up until about two years ago, until they moved to Vauxhall. But it's not that building; uh, it's literally two doors down. So the United States uh, Army, their headquarters, their London posh headquarters, were based there. Uh, he was found guilty, dishonorably discharged from service. He would have to fought his forfeit his all of his pay and his allowances that were due, and that he would be confined to hard labour for the rest of his natural life. The commanding general desires to express his deepest regrets for this unfortunate occurrence and his assurance that the conduct of this nature will not be tolerated. It will be appreciated, this was a, a letter sent, it will be appreciated if you would convey these sentiments to the next of kin of the deceased. I'm sure they appreciated that. 
uh, and that was in a letter dated 6th of November 1945 uh, and I think that's all we need to know I did a little research I couldn't find any more information about private Thomas Edward Croft what happened to him after that uh, if it if any, anyone is in America and you have access to like a genealogy website, uh, have a peep on there. Uh, see what happened to Private Thomas Edward Croft. I think I've mentioned in there what what, what battalion he was in. Oh, I had to edit it out because it was all really confusing. It was like in the 59th detachment of the 127th. It's like, who gives a shit? Uh, <laughs> I didn't. That's just like, oh, just too many things. Let me see. Let me see where he was. Uh, uh, just having a look, having a look, having a look, having a look. It's here somewhere. Nah, bollocks to it. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. So the the um, if you've ever been to Leicester Square and you've been to the uh, uh, Warner Cinema, which is still there on Leicester Square. So in there, down in the basement, I've been in the basement many times as kind of a lounge area. That's where uh, Lena and Private Divine had their first night together. Ooh, lovely. So, that was that episode. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I'm going to sign off now because I'm going to I'm going to power through and try and edit this so I can get this done, get it out, and then I've got I've got Saturday to hopefully have a bit of fun time for myself. So, uh, hope you enjoyed that. Have yourself a good week and uh, tatty bye. Ta da! Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.